So I'm Pastor Michael. Um, We are continuing our sermon series in the Gospel of John. And we're now in the final weeks of Jesus' life. And it's important here that we get the sequence of events right that leads to Jesus' death. And what happens is that at the beginning of John chapter 11, Lazarus dies. This is Jesus' dear friend. And so he goes down to Bethany to be with uh, Martha and Mary, the sisters of Lazarus, because he dearly loves this family. And then he stands before Lazarus' tomb, and then after four days of being dead, he raises Lazarus from the dead, which is the final capstone sign in the Gospel of John. It's his greatest and most spectacular miracle in the ministry of Jesus. And then what happens is that there were some people in the crowd who had witnessed this miracle who then go to Jerusalem. Remember, Bethany is only two miles east of Jerusalem. It's really a suburb of Jerusalem. They go and they report it to the religious authorities who then meet in council. This is the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin decides that Jesus has to die because he's become too much of a threat. And they see this miracle as really a prelude to an uprising. And so they decide to arrest him, and they're going to kill him. Remember, Caiaphas, the high priest, says, it is better for one man to die than the whole nation should perish. And so that brings us up to speed. And so this is where we pick up the story. If you could turn to page 4 in your bulletin, I'm going to read to you um, John 11, verse 54, all the way to 12, 11. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a a town called Ephraim, Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave him... They gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. 
The poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the word of God. All right, a lot going on. I have three points. Here's the outline. Number one, we're going to look at Mary's devotion. Number two, we're going to look at Judas's objection. And then number three, we're going to look at Jesus' burial. So we're going to look at Mary, we'll look at Judas, and then we're going to look at Jesus. All right? So first point, Mary's devotion. So you need to understand that this story is also told in, a parallel, in parallel accounts in the Gospels of Matthew and in the Gospel of Mark. And in those parallel accounts, when Mary does her act of devotion, it is not just Judas who objects, but it's all the disciples. They all object. The whole room explodes in anger because in Mark chapter 14, verse 5, after Mary did her act of devotion, the text tells us that they rebuked her harshly. Now, that's a rather tame translation because the Greek word there is the word embri maomai. And embri maomai is the same word that was used to describe Jesus standing before the tomb of Lazarus. It literally means to flare your nostrils in anger. It's a very strong word. And so the whole room was outraged by what Mary had done. Why? And the answer is that you have to understand the magnitude of what Mary did. You have to see just how extravagant and lavish it is. And John gives us three details that when you stack them on top of each other and you understand the cultural context of the time, it is astonishing. It is breathtaking. So let me walk you through them. First, first detail. If you look at verse 3, this is in the middle paragraph of our text. In verse 3, it says, Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. Now, when John describes this as expensive ointment, it is quite an understatement. Because this ointment was made, John tells us, from nard. Now, what is nard? The full name here is spikenard. And spikenard is an oil extract that comes from a rare flower that only grows in the Himalayan mountains of Nepal and India. And the only way that traders in the ancient world can bring it to the Mediterranean world is that they would have to trek it across India, Persia, Mesopotamia, Syria, until they finally reached the Mediterranean world. A land journey of over 3,000 miles. It would take more than a year to do this. And it's kind of mind-boggling, right? Because it's almost like a, a, a plot detail that you would find in The Princess Bride, right? And as you can imagine, therefore, nard 
was extraordinarily expensive. It was arguably, pound for pound, the most valuable trade good in the ancient Mediterranean world. And the reason it was so valuable is that it was a very potent aromatic oil, which when you used it and and mixed it with other substances, because it was so valuable, you would never use it in its pure form. So you would mix it with aloes or other scented oils. And when when you did that, it was a perfume. And perfumes had a very important social function in the ancient world. Why? Because in the ancient world, people didn't take baths. At least not very often, because there was a scarcity of water. And so this was a time when they didn't have deodorant. They didn't have running water to take showers. This is an agricultural society, and so people are out there working in the fields all day under the hot Mediterranean sun. They come home. They don't really take showers. And so you can just imagine, people smelled bad. Everyone smelled really bad. They stink. And this was a huge problem for important social occasions. And so what would happen is that when you go to a festival, the host would dab a little drop of perfume on your head or on your chest, and it would act as a kind of shield to protect you from the smells, and it would envelop you in this sweet and pleasant aroma through the course of the feast. And so it was this very important, um, it was highly sought after in the ancient world. But in addition to that, nard in its pure form because a small amount of it was so expensive, was also used as a store of wealth. Now, in the ancient world, they didn't have banks. You couldn't, you know, deposit your savings at a bank. And so because of the high value, pure pure nard could be used as a savings account. Now, the text tells us that Mary had a pound, which is a Roman pound of pure nard. That's about half a liter. We're not talking about it very much. You could hold it in your hand. And the Gospels of Matthew and Mark furthermore tell us that she kept this pure nard in an alabaster jar. Alabaster is a translucent-like gem. It's, it's very similar to marble. Which, and so an alabaster jar itself was quite expensive. And so the whole package, this whole alabaster jar with um, pure nard, Judas puts the value of it at 300 denarii. Now, a denarius was a day's wages. So 300 300 denarii, we're talking about a full year's salary. If you translate that into the Bay Area today, we're talking about ballpark estimate $80,000. This was an $80,000 bottle of perfume. What is Mary doing with an $80,000 bottle of perfume? And the answer, don't you see, is that this was her life savings. Maybe this was a family heirloom that had been passed down to her, but whatever it is, this represented her entire net worth. This was her safety net. This was her hedge against famine or war or some kind of disaster. And then she comes out in the middle of this meal. (laughs) Picture this. 
She's holding an alabaster jar of pure nard. And everyone who sees this, they must have thought, oh yes, what an honor that Mary is going to give Jesus as the distinguished guest of this meal one, maybe two drops of this perfume. But the Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus, that, I'm sorry, that Mary sits down at Jesus' feet. And then Mark says, she smashes it open. She shatters the jar open and she pours all the contents out. And at the end of verse 3 in our text, it tells us that the whole room, the whole house was just filled. It was just flooded with the fragrance of this perfume. Can you imagine it? The second detail, Jesus, uh, sorry, Mary pours out the nard on Jesus' feet, his feet. Now you have to understand that in the ancient world, everyone walked around on sandals, on dusty roads. And because this is an agricultural society, there would have been animal droppings everywhere. So you're just walking through that. And therefore, the feet was the lowliest. It was the dirtiest. It was the most unpresentable part of your body. And only the lowest of low servants could be assigned to wash somebody's feet. Do you remember in the upper room, the disciples refused to wash each other's, each other's feet because it was so disgusting. It was so demeaning a task. And therefore, what does it mean that Mary, rather than anointing Jesus' head, which would have been expected in that culture, instead, she anoints his feet? this seemingly tremendous waste. I want you to know that pouring out the nard on his feet, she was magnifying the honor. Because what she was saying is that this gift is not worthy of your head, O Lord. It's sort of like John the Baptist. Remember, Jesus says he was the greatest prophet who had ever lived. John the Baptist says, I am unworthy even to untie the straps of the sandals of the Messiah. And so I want you to see that this is not just an act of utter humility, but it's an act of absolute exaltation. Right? She's talking about the majesty and the greatness of Jesus. And then the third detail, which I think is the most stunning, Mary undoes her hair. Do you understand what this means? In the ancient Jewish world, a woman's hair was the most graceful, it was the most delicate part of her. And in that culture, a woman's hair was her crown and her glory. And in the dusty climate of the uh, Middle East, women always wore their hair up, tightly bound, to protect it from the elements. And the only place that she would let down her hair is in the privacy of her bedroom. But out in public, it would never be unbound. And therefore, because a woman's hair was such an intimate part of her, it was also a very 
expressive way that she could express strong emotions. So, for example, if a woman in the ancient Near East, if a woman was mourning and and grieving, she would dishevel her hair and she would cover it with dust and ashes. And sometimes she would even pull out her hair. And it was a very powerful way to communicate emotional distress and her deep sorrow because a woman's hair was sacred. I want you to imagine the scene. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. She pours out this bottle of pure nard. And then she lets down her hair. And as everyone is watching, no doubt with audible gasps, she uses her own hair and she wipes Jesus' feet. She doesn't use a towel. She doesn't use a cloth. She uses her own hair to clean the feet of Jesus. And I want you to understand the intensity of this. I want you to understand how costly this was and how deeply personal and vulnerable this act of devotion was. Now, how should we think about this? Let's do a little bit of analysis. There are two basic ways that we can look at it. We can say, on the one hand, what a saint Mary is. What a saint. What she did was so amazing, so beautiful, but it's not for everyone. You can't expect this of everyone. The problem with that is that viewpoint is represented by Judas and the disciples. Remember, the whole room erupts in indignation and outrage because what Mary does is so over the top. It's so extreme. And they're basically screaming at her, Mary, where is your sense of proportion? This is crazy. And do you know what Jesus does? He rebukes them. He rebukes them and he says, leave her alone. He says, Mary's sense of proportion is perfect. It's perfect. Because what she has done is right. It is proper. And the real question is, why aren't you guys doing the same thing for me? Why aren't you guys letting down your hair and pouring expensive perfume at your feet? And I think the natural instinct, our natural instinct is to respond to that and say, that's too much. Jesus, you're asking for too much. And I think, and here I'm going to be a little bit hard-heading, I think that for many of us in this room, we want God in our lives. We want his presence. We want his help. But at the same time, we are negotiating how much he can ask of us. And we are willing to give God part of our lives, We're willing to give him some parts to him, but not everything, because let's be reasonable. There has to be something left over for us to live on. There's a great quote 
in um, C.S. Lewis's book, Mirror Christianity, excellent book, by the way. And in this chapter, C.S. Lewis is talking about the Christian life, how people typically think of it, and how we think about the demands that God places on us. And listen to this quote. I think it is so incisive and cutting. He says, We are hoping all the time that when all the demands have been met, the poor natural self will still have some chance and some time to get on with its own life and to do what it likes. And then listen to this. In fact, we are very much like an honest man paying his taxes. He pays them all right, but he does hope that there will be enough left over for him to live on. I think for so many of us, we look at devotion to God like we're paying taxes. And we'll give God 10% of our income. We'll give him Sunday mornings and come to church. But the rest of the time is for us. The rest of the money is for ours to spend. What more can God ask of us? And this passage is saying no. No. You have to give him everything. You have to give him your whole self. And what this passage is saying is that we're asking the wrong question. The wrong question is what percentage of our lives will satisfy God. That's the wrong question. The right question is, is Jesus Christ the Lord of your life or is he not? Is he the creator of all things and everything you possess is a gift from him so that every breath that you draw, every ray of sunshine that falls upon your face is an unmerited gift from his hands and therefore you owe him everything. And therefore, when you acknowledge that, when you accept that, you're not just giving 10% of your income, but you think of yourself as a steward of your money, not an owner of your money. And therefore, as a steward, as a trustee, you have a fiduciary responsibility to spend the money according to the will of the true owner. So that Sunday mornings is not the, um, the, the end of your uh, duties to God, it is just the beginning. Do you guys know that in the Christian calendar, um, Sunday is the first day of the week? It's not the weekend. It's the beginning of the week. And so think about this. Symbolically, what does it mean that you are giving God the first part of the first day of the week? Do you know what that means? It means every hour belongs to God. And every day you wake up and you should be praying, Lord, what have you for me today? When I go to work, when I go to school, when I take care of the children... How can I serve you? How can I bring you honor? Because my time doesn't belong only to me. And so the question is, are you just paying taxes to God or is he Lord and Savior? Second point, Judas's objection. So in verse 5, Judas says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and then that money given to the poor. Now we know Judas, Judas's concern for the poor 
was disingenuous because the text tells us he was a thief. His real interest was skimming off the top of the money bag. And that is important, and we'll get back to that later. But for the moment, I want to look at this, that Judas, nevertheless, is making a serious point. And we know that, first of all, because Matthew and Mark tells us all the disciples were saying the same thing. And then secondly, if this was just misdirection, if this was just a cover story without any merit to it, then Jesus would have treated it as such. He would have said, Judas, you just want the money for yourself. But he doesn't say that. He takes it as a serious point, and instead he addresses this objection straight on. And this is Jesus' answer to the objection. In verse 8, listen to this. He says, The poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let me pause here for a moment and just acknowledge that this verse has been badly misinterpreted in the past. Because it sort of sounds like Jesus is shrugging his shoulders and saying, ah, there will always be poor people. So it doesn't really matter what you do, right? Like 300 denarii, that's a drop in the bucket. It sounds like indifference to the poor. But I want you to know that is the very opposite of what Jesus taught. Jesus constantly taught us to love the poor, to identify with the poor, to show compassion and mercy and justice to the poor. The poor was always uppermost in Jesus' mind. And so I want you to know, verse 8 is assuming the importance of the poor. He's assuming it. And therefore, what he says is very strong. Because what he's saying is that Mary, what Mary is doing supersedes, has a higher priority than even charity to the poor. And I want to be very clear on this, okay? Jesus is claiming preeminence even over the needs of the poor. How can he do this? What gives them the right to do this? The answer is Jesus is God. Listen to me. On the lips of any other human being, if this was said, this would be outrageous. This would be blasphemous and wicked. Because what Jesus is saying is that the plight of the poor, the suffering of the poor, he says, is secondary to me. Now, there are some people in this room perhaps, who are hearing that and saying, yeah, I don't agree with that. That doesn't sound right to me. And if you're saying that, with all due respect, let me press you on this. Let me press you on this. Because the Bible says that the only way to love the poor well, the only way to truly love the poor, is you have to love God first. Several weeks ago, I was watching a Netflix documentary on the life of Bill Gates called Inside Bill's Brain. Really good documentary. And it focuses on the charitable work of his foundation. And the whole uh, documentary basically 
shows you how Bill Gates is using his giant brain. And it's so clearly evident. He's like uh, an insane genius. He's like this data processing machine. He could read like two books a day. It's ridiculous, right? And he uses his giant brain to solve these enormously complex problems of global poverty. So it talks about how he's trying to solve, uh, eradicate polio. He's trying to give clean water to Africa and Asia. And he's using the same analytical firepower with which he built up Microsoft to be this technology behemoth. And now he's doing the same thing in philanthropy. And you need to know that his interest in philanthropy is not because of his devotion to God. It's not out of any kind of religious motivation. In another interview, he famously said this. Listen to this. Just in terms of the allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more I could be doing on a Sunday morning. And so Bill Gates is not doing this because of God. And at one point in the documentary, there's this really interesting exchange. The interviewer asks Bill Gates, he says, you know, when you think about the poor, do you think about them as individual people? You know, do you think about, you know, the individual stories behind the work that you're doing? Do you know what he, he answered? He said, no, not really. He says, I think about it in abstract terms in terms of aggregate numbers. And then the interviewer said, then why are you doing this? And he said, my interest is in the optimization of resources, the optimization of capital. Now, I don't mean to be critical. I really appreciate Bill Gates' work with his foundation. I think it has a tremendous benefit for society. I'm glad he's doing it. He seems like a cool guy to hang out with. But my question is this. Is Bill Gates helping the poor because he loves the poor? Or is it for him just another intricate engineering problem for his brain to work on now that he's no longer at the helm of Microsoft? Or let me put it this way. Let me go at it in another direction. There's a really interesting line in Jane Austen's novel, Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice, there are three sisters, Lizzie, Jane, and Mary. Now, Lizzie Bennet, the heroine of the story, she has this sharp tongue and wit. And Jane, she is the prettiest and the most popular of the sisters. And then Mary, Jane Austen says, Mary being the plainest, was the most overtly religious. And so she was constantly doing religious activities. She was constantly going to church. She was reading the Bible. She was involved in charitable work for the poor because, Jane Austen says, she was the most unattractive of the three sisters. Do you understand what Jane Austen is saying? You see, it is possible to give charity to the poor, not because you love the poor, but out of an inner emptiness, out of an inner inadequacy. 
And if that's the case, then you're not loving the poor, you're using the poor. You're using charity to build up for yourself a worth and a significance apart from God. And I know this is going to sound really paradoxical, but hear me out. The only way that you can really love the poor is you have to love God first. The only way that you can truly care for the poor so that it's not all tied up in your ego and in your vanity is to put God first so that it doesn't become another self-salvation project. So that otherwise, you're using the poor to fill up this emptiness inside of you that only God can fill, that only God should fill. This is why, in this story, notice, charity and thievery are linked together. Notice that Judas can simultaneously nurse his greedy little thoughts and, in the same breath, advocate for the poor. Now, some of you are saying, wait a minute, those things are completely opposite, right? In one of them, you're giving away money. In the other, you're taking money. But if you look underneath the surface, if you go down to the motivational level, they can both be driven by selfish desires and self-ambition. They can both come out of an inner poverty of the spirit unless you put God first. And therefore, to love God supremely, to put him in your heart above all things in this life is the only way to purify your charitable works. It is the only way to cleanse your heart so that it is out of the fullness of the heart, not out of the emptiness of the heart, that you help the poor. So that you don't impose on the poor your problems, your issues. So that you don't become impatient when you think there's not enough rapid progress so that you don't become disheartened or even angry when you don't think you see sufficient gratitude. Because I want you to know it is hard to love the poor because it is hard to love people. Because people are sinners. People are messy. And they will disappoint you. But the love of God never fails. And when your heart is filled with his love, you can endure. You can bear all hardships so that you're free to love people, not use them. All right, third point, Jesus' burial. So in verse 7, Jesus defends Mary. And what he says is that she's doing this for the day of my burial. Now, it seems like a non sequitur, right? seems like out of place, doesn't seem to follow, kind of random. Why are we suddenly talking about Jesus dying? The answer is you have to, the key to it is you have to zoom out and look at the story in the larger literary structure because it's all of a piece. It's a seamless fabric. And remember, in the last passage, the Sanhedrin decides Jesus has to die. They're going to arrest him. They're going to kill him. And then at the beginning of our passage, at the top of our passage, what do you see? In response to that, 
Jesus withdraws from public view. He adopts a kind of strategic hiddenness so that he knows um, there are agents of the Sanhedrin out there looking for him. He's a wanted man. And then at the end of our passage, notice that these are bookends of the story. At the end of the passage, the Sanhedrin finally learns where Jesus is. He's, at, he's back at Bethany, but he, because he's surrounded by this enormous crowd, they can't act. They can't take him right there. So what you see is they're plotting, they're scheming, and then it even tells us, and it's almost kind of like a comical detail, they decide Lazarus has to die too, right? Which just shows you their bad faith. They're not interested in the evidence. They're not interested in finding out, did this miracle really happen? Because if that's true, then Jesus must come from God. This is a power that can only come from God. And so you see all this plotting and scheming, and therefore the whole feel of this story, the whole emotional tenor of the story, just a vibrating is what? Jesus is a dead man walking. And in the middle of all this plotting and conspiracy, you have this meal. And I want you to see this meal swirling around it is the specter of death. And somehow, only Mary is able to perceive what is going on. You know, when you look at Mary throughout the Gospels, you always see her sitting at Jesus' feet. She's always listening. She's always reflecting on his word. And because of that, Mary is ahead of everyone. And she understands something that nobody else seems to understand because she learns, she learns this new thing. At the end of chapter 11, remember when um, after Lazarus is raised from the dead, In verse 45, we're told this new detail. You might have missed it. Let me read it to you again. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, that's the detail, and had seen what Jesus did, that is, raised Lazarus, they believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So what is this telling us? It's telling us that the crowd who had witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus, these were Mary's friends. And they had come to comfort her and to console her. And when they saw the miracle, many of them put their faith in Jesus. But some of them decided to go and report it to the religious authorities in Jerusalem. Now, surely, surely Mary's other friends who had seen this happen went and told Mary what those other friends had done And so Mary is sitting there. She's piecing it all together. She's thinking, she's processing this. And then she comes into the meal. And what she's saying is, Lord, I now realize something. I realize that the only way you could raise Lazarus from the dead is that you have to go down into the grave in his place. I realize now that the only way you could interrupt Lazarus' funeral is that you have to cause your own. She's saying, Lord, I understand now what you've been trying to say to us all of this time. The greater love has no one than this, and he laid down his life for his friends. Lord, I get it now. I see it for the first time, and I'm amazed by your love. 
I'm amazed by your sacrificial death. And I think that Mary somehow knows, she knows that Jesus is going to voluntarily, willingly let himself be taken by the Sanhedrin. And then therefore he's going to die this horrible and violent death, the death of a criminal, at the hands of the Romans. And if that happens, she knows that she will not get a chance to properly prepare his body for burial. And this is something difficult for us as modern people to understand, but in the ancient world, it was crucially important. It was a sacred duty to prepare the body of your loved ones for burial. And you had to do this personally. You had to do this with your own hands. And so what, what you would do is you would lovingly wash the body clean. And then you would wrap the body with fresh linen cloth. And then you would treat the body with all kinds of spices and aromatic ointments. This was all very expensive, all very time-consuming. And it was crucially important to do this as a way to honor their memory. Now, somehow Mary knew she would not have the chance to do this for Jesus. And so what she decides to do is in the meal, basically, in advance of his death, she's going to lovingly anoint his body for his burial. That's what Jesus is saying. She's doing this for the day of my burial. And I want you to know that's the key to understanding Mary's devotion. See, when you go back to the disciples and you look at their reaction, Judas's reaction to Mary, why did they get so angry? Why did they object so strenuously? The answer is they didn't see Jesus dying for them. They didn't see his sacrificial love. But Mary did. I want you to know that your love for Jesus will be a small love. You will always be parceling it out in carefully measured doses as long as you don't see him dying for you on the cross. And to the degree that you see the Lord of creation in human flesh dying for you on a Roman cross, to that degree your heart will be overwhelmed and you will love him back with your whole life. Nothing held back. And so I want you to see the challenge of this passage. Do you love him with all of your being? Or even now, are you negotiating how much he can demand from you? Let's pray. Lord, when we see Mary's example, we confess that our love is so tepid. It's so carefully measured and drawn because we're holding on to our lives. But we know that if we hold on to our lives, we will lose it. And it's only when we lose it for your sake that we will find it. Lord, heal our hearts. Open our eyes. Give us ears to hear the good news of Christ crucified. In his name we pray. Amen.